The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here is what's ahead this hour. After days of anticipation, the S&P finally hits a record high, may even close there, but it's barely holding on. This after blowout numbers from Home Depot and Walmart, but they can't even keep those stocks afloat. Is all the good news already baked into this market? That is the question of the day. Plus, truly spectacular, another SPAC hits the market with investors on a mission to reinvent this IPO process. We'll look at the two new names going public and discuss the potential risks. And an unlikely player enters the race for TikTok. It's Apple's epic battle and why the V-shaped recovery is happening right before our eyes. That's all ahead. But we begin with today's markets. Dom Chu here with, once again, the key numbers, Dom. Oh, the key numbers, 33.95. That is our new record intraday level. Kelly, as you said, a big debate right now about whether all the good news that could come in the coming months is baked into the marketplace right now. The Dow Industrials, you can see here, just about flat for the day. Not a whole heck of a lot of movement so far. But remember, the S&P, I'm going to put that up here, 33.95. That is our new record intraday level for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq actually pacing the advance right now, as it has been for the better part of the last several months. Checking out some key trends. What's got us to this record level? It's consumer discretionary technology and materials. Those are the three best performing sectors in the S&P 500. Specific emphasis on consumer discretionary and technology, especially because that's the biggest weighted sector in the S&P 500. Now, let's talk about whether things are priced for perfection. Two stocks, both of them at record highs in just the last couple of days, both reporting earnings. Home Depot, it was at one point right after earnings, positive in the pre-market session. As you can see here, that trend has been lower for the better part of all day now. Home Depot, remember, let's put it in context. Again, a record high for this stock, as you can see with this particular chart, for the one-year basis, yes, record high levels here just a couple days ago. So that's big. The other one right now is, of course, what's happening with Walmart. Same kind of story. Pre-market trade for Walmart. We saw a pop right after the earnings came out this morning, and then it's been kind of downhill ever since. And again, for a stock that for the one-year basis, was just at record highs two days ago. So watch that particular trade in Walmart. A big move there. Is everything baked in? I'm sure you guys will explore it later on in this show. Back over We're going to explore it right now. Dom, thank you very much. The sell-off and reversal in those retail stocks today does suggest this good news has already been priced in. Plus, there's another crucial factor in their gains that's in limbo right now. It's the government stimulus. Both Walmart and Advance Auto Parts attributed their stellar sales to household payments and unemployment benefits. So with COVID relief stuck in Congress, is this as good as it gets? Joining me now are Dan Genter. He's CEO and CIO of RNC Genter Capital. Capital Management, and Mark Smith is Vice President of the Canner Smith Wealth Management Group at UBS. So it's good to have you both here. And Mark, I'll begin with you. What would you do with retail stocks right now? And are they telling you something emblematic of the broader market? Listen, retail right now is 20% is back to school sales for the year. And if you, if you look at uh, University of North Carolina, we just saw it yesterday, they had a grand opening, grand closing. Seven days now they're going back to on, uh, online learning. So that is, is uh, saying a lot about what's going to happen to the retail sector if you have 20 percent 
of your annual sales coming from back to school sales and we're not going back to school. So, you know, I, we're saying at Connor Smith Group at UBS that you really have to be defensive uh, going forward. And we're looking for other sectors that are possibly going to do better yeah. um, with an ongoing pandemic. Fair enough, Mark. But some would say a company like Walmart is defensive, right? I mean, that all of those trends you're describing, they're benefiting from. If we're going back into shutdowns, that's exactly what was powering these names in the first place, minus the government stimulus. But you have to think at some point that would be on the way, too, right? Yeah, but it's all about the numbers. 20% of sales for retail is back-to-school sales. Lots of us are not going back to school. Chicago said no school. University of North Carolina, as I just said before, tried, failed. I think that's a microcosm of what's going to happen nationally. We are very optimistic about what's going to happen. Unfortunately, the science isn't as optimistic. So retail... You know, I'm saying you have to be defensive. Understood. So, Dan, let me bring you in on that. Do you share this kind of skepticism about uh, the progress in fighting COVID and in reopening the economy? Because, look, I would say the COVID numbers nationally are better in recent weeks. It does kind of help explain why the market has this optimism. Well, Kelly, I think you're right. And I agree with Mark. I think we're, we're going to have a number of starts and stops and it's just going to be a reality. I mean, this is we we don't have a vaccine. Even if we get a vaccine by year end, it's going to be a long time before we really see the effectiveness. And and frankly, we've had some damage just to the U.S. consumer psyche as to whether or not they're really willing to get out in a normalized fashion and shop. So we're going to have additional outbreaks. Uh, Again, as Mark mentioned, you're opening schools, you're closing schools, you're opening restaurants, closing restaurants. You're really going to have to, I I still think, focus on the stocks that are either benefiting from this situation or those that are going to not be quite as cyclical or as volatile as reopen. And I think to have solid earnings that are going to be predictable. And, and frankly, you're, you know, some of the high dividend stocks right now are just going to be a good place to ride this out, have a little bit of yield yeah. while we see what happens in the next 12 months. I know Altria is one of those names. It's unbelievable to have an 8% dividend right. yield right now. Bank of America also pops up. You know, the financials do sport pretty good yields these days. Theirs is nearly 3%. Why, though, the advertising uh, play of Omnicom? I know this isn't necessarily a dividend. Well, look, it's almost like you said, a, a 5% dividend yield. But it would seem like advertising is one of the most fickle places to be right now. Well, I think an Omnicom is a little bit special. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that they have very, very strong cash flow. They have a very strong balance sheet. They can really ride this out. They're in a situation that, look, as soon as we begin to turn the lights back on, people are going to hit advertising with a vengeance. They need to get people back in the stores, back in the restaurants, back in the showrooms. And they're in a situation that right now, with the, again, you can ride it out, get almost 5% while you wait. I mean, they're trading at an 11 P.E., so it's, it's almost a giveaway, and they will have a very rapid acceleration of earnings as we go back here. So it's clearly it's a reopening stock, but I like having a reopening stock, as we're mentioning, that where the reopening is somewhat tenuous, yeah. that they're going to pay me 5% while I wait. No, that I understand. So, Mark, final question. Let me circle back. You mentioned your defensiveness on the retail names. Does that extend to the overall market, and where would you position right now? Listen, Warren Buffett, one of my heroes, is buying a ton of gold. You just saw him buy 20 million shares of Barrick. UBS has a buy on gold. We're continuing to to think this is going to continue. This rally is going to continue in the gold space. So I would say, you know, let's follow, you know, the the Oracle from Omaha and and, and let's get some gold in those portfolios. uh, All right, Mark, what what if I said to you, and I don't know this, it's just speculation. What if I said to you, it's not Warren, it's his guys and it's, you know, a a fraction of one percent of the portfolio. Would you still be as excited? 
It's definitely Warren. There's no he, he's not just he's not just letting people go willy nilly and buying this amount of gold. Uh, and, and and not and not, and not only that. It's a gold miner. It's a gold miner. But yeah, go ahead. Gold miners, gold. All, it's all going to do well in this type of environment. And you're seeing that UBS, one of the world's largest banks, is saying buy gold. Every major investment bank and wealth management firm saying buy gold. There's got to be something to that. If the smart money is saying get defensive. Um, you, you got to listen. All right. And I totally I mean, we've heard this kind of uh, the rationale for it. We've talked about it with Rick and others. What's going on with the dollar? What's going on with a lot of these asset classes? So, Dan, I'll just give you the final response to that. Would you be buying gold? Well, we really don't traffic in the commodity area, but I think that you can't deny the momentum that's been there. And I think for any investor to have a diversified portfolio and have some hard commodities as part of their portfolio is a reasonable way to diversify. You know, I think we want to have a little more cash flow, as I mentioned earlier, as we go through this, because we're just going to be where I think this timeline to total economic recovery is going to be longer than people think. So I want to have some cash flow. I want to have be in position for the upward momentum. And if you're going to diversify into some other commodities, then I think, you know, that can be a foundation and a base. And, and certainly it's had, an, it's had a nice run. All right. Thank you both. An enjoyable discussion as always. Dan Genter and Mark Smith on these markets today. Now let's get to the latest housing market data. Another much better than expected report with home building soaring in July. Diana Olick has more for us. Diana. Yeah, Kelly, both starts and building permits beat expectations on the total numbers. But take a look inside the headlines. Multifamily drove the gains up about 57 percent for the month. Single family starts were up 8 percent but still not back to the rate we saw back in December and January. Single family permits, which are an indicator of future construction, they were up a much stronger 17%. So what all this means is that we're still not getting enough new single family supply to meet the growing pandemic-induced demand for new homes. Supply was down 14% annually in June, Builders are planning with those permits, but they're still having issues with supply chain and labor, not to mention lumber prices are soaring. Add it up and you're looking at even higher prices for newly built homes, which were already up five and a half percent annually in June. Kelly, Diana, this is amazing to me. It feels like housing is leading the whole economy into recovery, which I hope is the case. Look at Home Depot and how well they've done. Um, It's also interesting to look at where people are benefiting. So Rochester, New York. You know, one of these new hot housing markets, uh, supposedly Topeka, I think, was it Topeka or Wichita, Kansas? I mean, there is something to be said about these kind of second tier, third tier cities that are all of a sudden seeing huge demand. Yeah, and it's not so all of a sudden. We were actually seeing millennials migrate to smaller cities. Pittsburgh last year was incredibly popular. Cleveland, it's smaller, affordable cities. And now that you have this uh, new way of work from home where you can really work from anywhere. It even it makes these smaller, more affordable cities that much more attractive. And that's why they're in the hottest zip codes right now, because uh, people just don't want to live in very expensive, large urban downtowns. They want to get out somewhere where they can get more space and not pay so much. Yeah. And, I and that's where the builders are building as well. For sure. I mean, that's where they can. And I'm, you know, I say second and third tier. I just mean size wise. You know, I, I grew up near Rochester. That's why I love, you know, it's back on top. I love it. Um, Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Diana Olick with the latest housing data for us. Still ahead, another electric vehicle maker is jumping into the ring today, debuting in the new spectacular way. We're going to look at whether the landscape is getting too crowded and if the risks are worth it for investors. Plus, TikTok's somewhat surprising new bidder will tell you which tech giant wants to get in the social game now and the politics that may be at play. And so much for working from home. 
Amazon's adding 900,000 square feet of office space across America. We'll tell you where, why, and what that's telling us about the future of work coming up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Another day, another company going public in the hot new way for 2020 via a SPAC. And this is another electric vehicle maker. This time it's called Canoe. Philip Bowe has that story for us and a look into the rush to cash in on the frenzy for electric cars lately. But we begin with Leslie Picker and the reason, Leslie, why so many companies are choosing this way to go public right now. Kelly, it's a good question. And the pitch starts with investors. Write us a blank check. You'll get in on the ground floor of a pre-IPO tech company. Then they take their hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars in tow. And those managers will then search for their target. Their pitch to those founders then is sell to us and we'll expedite your route to the public markets. In the last few months, we've seen this kind of pitch from the likes of Bill Ackman, uh, Jaws Acquisitions, Barry Sternlicht. And today, an entrepreneur who someone who has taken several companies public, the traditional route, saw his SPAC called One begin trading. That's Kevin Hartz. He says the SPAC is the ideal vehicle at the right place and the right time. We've seen companies staying private for far too long. The average time that companies stay private is now 12 years. It was John Doerr in the 90s that said six to seven quarters of growing revenue in a tech company should be out in the market. And we're looking to we're seeing the market move back the other way what they say is uh, light is the best antiseptic we need to get these companies really fit out in the public markets uh, critics of SPAC say that it's more expensive and an unproven path to the public market. So, Kelly, there's there's really no such thing as a free lunch when it comes to uh, debuting your company in the public markets. I'm sure. And it's interesting because in this case, it, you know, the company choosing this way to go public has to give up a fair bit of control, right? You give up a fair bit of control and it's expensive. You're paying investment bankers up and down the entire chain. You're paying them to underwrite uh, the, the SPAC to begin with, the blank check company that goes public, uh, you, you're paying investment bankers to underwrite that. So paying regular IPO fees, essentially. You're paying the investment banker to consummate uh, a deal once that's decided in the next two years, typically, or so. Uh, and then you're also paying the manager of, a, of the SPAC, what's known as a promote, which is essentially uh, 20%. Typically, not in every case, but usually it's about 20 percent uh, of the total offering size. So you're looking at about, oh, say, 25 percent of the total offering size of the SPAC in fees, which is technically more expensive than a traditional IPO. That is expensive no matter how you look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, it would seem to me, <laughs> Leslie, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. Let's turn now to Phil LeBeau. And why Canoe is the fourth now electric vehicle company since March to go public, Phil, this way? Uh, Kelly, it's because EV pure plays are hot right now. And Canoe, which has been around 
since 2017, known as Canoe since 2018, uh, was approached by Hennessy Ca uh, Capital, which is a bank a blank check company. So when Hennessy Capital Acquisition approached them, they said, let's put this SPAC IPO together, value of $2.4 billion. When it starts trading on the NASDAQ, it'll be under the symbol CNOO. $600 million, the proceeds from this will go to launch the first vehicle. And that vehicle is also known as Canoe. It's a little on the funky side in terms of its looks and appearance. Lots of room on the inside. Think of it as a cross between perhaps a minivan and maybe sort of a larger a uh, transport type vehicle, but everybody who's looked at it has said, well, it's an interesting concept. If it works, the CEO, when we talked to him this morning on Squawk Box, said this will be offered through EV subscriptions in urban areas. The millennials, they are, they are actually not uh, willing to, to make a long-term commitment, making a down permit payment uh, for a vehicle, they would pretty much appreciate what we are doing because uh, we have a subscription model that allows them without any down payment to get the car month by month and it includes pretty much uh, everything. By the way, the canoe, that vehicle, is expected to roll out in the second quarter of 2022. Kelly? It is strange looking. I assume it complies with all the, regula all the regulation required to well, be on the road. Well, it will by the time it rolls out. I mean, right now it's in development. But they, they say they've crash tested, and they say that it will be ready. The other interesting thing is this business model, Phil, the subscription model. They're trying to make it as easy as possible for someone to basically say, I want this car tomorrow. I want all the paperwork and everything associated sure. with it kind of done so I can just start yep. driving it. What's the minimum period of time that you have to subscribe to it? I don't think they've, they've established that yet, Kelly. Those are all the questions that need to come up. By the way, that subscription model, it sounds very appealing. It really has not been successful when it's been brought to the market with traditional vehicles. It's been a case of a small number of people have said, I like the subscription idea. It just has not taken off the way many expected it to. Yeah, and is it called Canoe because of the way it looks? <laughs> I, I That's mean, a good question. Yeah. I did not ask Uli this morning why it is called Canoe, <laughs> but the next time I talk to Uli, I will ask him. Please do. It, some, it looks sort of a pot, a loft on wheels, they called it, but it has sort of a canoe feeling to it, I guess. Anyway, Phil, thank you very much, sir. You bet. Uh, we appreciate it. Phil, by the way, before you go, can I ask you real quickly about the other kind of big topic uh, that people have been hotly debating for the past 24 hours? This whole thing about whether GM would sure. spin off its electric vehicle operations into a standalone company. How legit do you think that is? Because we've now got analysts basing their entire valuation of the shares on this possibility. Well, keep in mind that all of this comes back to the fact that you had Tesla up on the screen behind you. It has exploded in value. You look at Nikola and you see the, the fact that that stock has exploded over the last three months since its SPAC IPO and the frenzy around EV-related Pure plays, people are saying, look, you've got great assets at General Motors. They should spin these off. Sounds great on paper. It's not as easily done. And the issue is that the EV business within General Motors is highly integrated to the company, and they are funding it right now through all the profits that they get from their pickup business, from their truck business in North America. And so the question becomes, do you, do you somehow carve that out? Do you spin it off? And if you do, Adam Jonas from Morgan Stanley is out today saying, look, Traditional vehicles are only worth about $21 billion, but look, the EV business could be worth at least three times that. The Altium battery business, if you were to sell some of those batteries to another automaker, a third-party sales, so to speak, you'd worth another $15 billion. So on paper, it looks like it's a smart move. But for Mary Barra, the question becomes, do you really want to go through everything involved there? 
in order to carve it out simply because there is such a frenzy right now with electric vehicle stocks. Right, exactly. Or is that too trendy, so to speak, of a move? We'll see. Phil, thank you very much. Phil Lebeau with all of the latest headlines for us. Coming up, a major university is reversing course after 130 COVID infections in just a week. This is college sports get canceled across the country. We'll have the details and more on the fallout. Plus, this stock is just as overbought as some of the FANG heavyweights, but it has nothing to do with tech. It's the next name in our Overcrowded Kings segment. We'll reveal it straight ahead. Stay with us. But wait, there's more. The Exchange is also a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets. Not huge movements behind me, but significant ones nevertheless. The S&P is up seven points right now to 33.88. We have to hold above 33.86 for that to be a new all-time closing high. So again, two points above that level right now. The Nasdaq is up about half a percent today, 58 points. But look at the Dow once again lagging, underperforming, same exact layout as we saw yesterday. The Dow's down 33 points. Home Depot, Walmart had blowout earnings. The stocks initially turned higher on that news, but have since sold off, and that's weighing on the major averages today. Let's check the sectors where you can see consumer discretionary communication services. Those tech-heavy sectors are outperforming today, uh, kind of in the rear. Energy is down 1.5%. Financial is down half a percent. Industrial. So today definitely has a little bit of the stay-at-home trade feel to it. Here are some of the individual movers. Kohl's is another retailer that was out with results. It was sharply lower after beating on the top and bottom lines. Why? The company declined to give comparable sales numbers because of store closures. It also says it expects the pandemic to have a continued impact on its business. Kohl's shares are down 17% today. JD.com, though, is higher after being added to the conviction buy list over at Goldman. Now, despite other Chinese stocks getting caught up in U.S.-China tensions, Goldman says JD should enjoy retail expansion. They highlight supermarket and pharmacy growth in particular. JD's up 4.5%. And finally, shares of Spotify are lower after Apple announced two new live global radio offerings on Apple Music. Uh, That enough to send Spotify down about a percent and a half today, but it's also on the growing list of companies claiming Apple has an unfair advantage that it uses over its rivals. We'll have more on that in rapid fire. But now to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News Update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. SpaceX launched its 11th mission and a record sixth flight for the Falcon 9 rocket carrying 58 Starlink satellites and three Earth imaging satellites. According to its founder, Elon Musk, 800 satellites are needed for its worldwide internet service, and they are now well over 600. It might be the first U.S. case of COVID transmission from mother to unborn baby. The Texas case is one of the few documented around the world. Doctors say the baby was otherwise healthy until she soon began showing signs of fever and respiratory distress. But the good news is both mother and baby are now doing well. And after an intense bidding war, the L.A. house that appeared on the popular 1980s era sitcom The Golden Girls has sold for a cool four million bucks. That is way over the three million dollar asking price. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. And the buyer who wants to remain anonymous isn't even a fan of the show. 
just a fan of the house. And Kelly, that's because it is a classic mid-century modern. It's never been changed. And it's in the Brentwood section of L.A. Mid-century modern is all over HGTV these days. Oh, absolutely. It is the hottest type of real estate and architecture in Los Angeles. They had 20 bids. Oh, my gosh. That tells you more about the housing market right now. It does. It's not the Especially out girls. west. Yeah. yeah. It's just the house. Sue, thank you very much. You got it. I'm over here now for today's Crowded King segment, and today's is about Toll Brothers. It's 23% above its 50-day moving average right now. As we discussed yesterday, these are some of the ways to watch whether a stock's momentum is becoming somewhat extended. Yesterday, we talked about Best Buy, one of the retail names that's well above its 50-day moving average. Today, it's the home builder, Toll Brothers. So here you can see the choppy blue line is the stock price nearing $45 a share, up from well below 15 at the lows back in March. The purple line here, that's a 50-day moving average. So again, this gap now, 23 three percent uh, is pretty large and one of those kind of cautionary signs that traders keep an eye on. Also, the relative strength index, that's something when you hit above the 50 mark, you start talking about pretty extended. This one, I think we're in about the 74, the mid-70s range for Toll Brothers. So a couple of reasons there why people are keeping an eye on it. Um, by the way, here's how tolls perform year to date. It's roughly in line with the S&P. It's up 8%, but it is up now 224% from that 52-week low. It was down as, to $13.28 back in March. Uh, we're back up now to about $42 a share and continuing to march higher, nearly 2% today uh, as a result of that strong housing data we talked about earlier. Coming up, despite cases rising and a reversal of reopening policies in some states, one strategist says we're still V-rebounding. He will tell us why. Plus, FedEx is doing something it hasn't done in years. Epic Games is rounding up its friends to battle Apple, and politics makes its way onto the playing field. That's all in Rapid Fire. We'll see you in two. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is rapid fire. And here to break down the headlines are John Fort, Seema Modi and Eric Chemi. Welcome to everybody. Uh, first up today, FedEx is following in the footsteps of the post office and rival UPS by tacking on hefty surcharges ahead of the holiday season. We're talking about fees of up to two dollars per package on some items shipped in the week after Thanksgiving, up to $5 a package for some high-volume shippers. Uh, notably, shares of both FedEx and UPS are down a little today, but have surged off their March lows. And SEMA, this just speaks to them struggling to manage this high demand. Yeah, this arms race that has been created for the for cost-effective last-mile delivery options is putting a strain on the biggest U.S. shipping giants. We've seen UPS take a similar move, and now FedEx. I think it's a very interesting timing as well. We're about 130 days away from Christmas, and yet now, here in August, uh, FedEx decides to unveil these uh, increase in prices. The counterpoint is Amazon. It hasn't had to increase its prices. And does that speak to the warehouses and fulfillment centers, its industrial real estate footprint? I think hmm. it does. Like, do they have a better business model, or are they absorbing the cost some other way? Eric, we just showed it. Let's put it back up. For UPS, these, these surcharges sound pretty hefty, and they are. I mean, the last time they imposed them, which was in 2018, it was roughly 28 cents a package for ground, 99 cents for air. Now it's three and four dollars. That's a I guess it also tells uh, us that they think 
this demand is almost inelastic for right. this shipping. demand this demand is still going to be there my main question is how much does this affect me the consumer i don't right. really care if companies have to pay it i assume it's going to get passed along to me but am i going to see that as a surcharge as a separate line item at the end of that bill or is it going to be baked into the cost i'm just curious what that consumer what the visual is going to be in terms of how do i actually see that cost in my bottom line 100 percent, john because do, do people start to cancel a purchase they might be making i mean maybe maybe not but again it's one thing for a company or even a, a, a buyer to absorb 28 cents, it is definitely another when we're talking about three, four, five dollars. Yeah, I don't know about the consumer. I think in a lot of cases the consumer won't see it, but you know who's really going to feel it is the small business, yes. especially if you're trying to compete with an Amazon that's got its own logistics network now. I mean, this is just another instance of the, the big getting bigger and strong getting stronger, probably in, in Amazon's case, to join its discovery and logistics network through Prime only gets stronger. Yeah, no, I, and I think in, in the case of UPS, some of the charges only applied to basically big retailers. But in the case of FedEx, John, you're absolutely right. Some of these appear to hit people whose volumes are suddenly way up. Well, who would have big fluctuations? Smaller companies, not the big ones, right? That's exactly right. I mean, the, the likes of Shopify kind of at least help with this, help small businesses to manage uh, that difficulty. But in this prime period where they absolutely have to make big sales, have to try to make themselves visible when you've got the big retailers like your Walmart, who we just saw uh, results from doing extremely well, it's another cost. Yeah. All right, next up, as we see what happens with that one, uh, this is one of the best stories of the last few weeks, and there's so much at stake for Apple here. Their battle with uh, Epic Games continues. Epic Games is now seeking a preliminary injunction against the tech giant about the removal of Fortnite from the App Store. Epic is threatened, says Apple is threatening to cut it out entirely by revoking its developer account. So it would no longer be able to make apps for the App Store. They're also trying to form a coalition, SEMA, of Apple critics. But, I mean, if they are successful here, it's really more about is Apple going to end up being charged with antitrust, anti-competitive practices? And this is perfect fodder for Congress, I would think. Yeah, and, and to your point, their critics have been uh, only getting louder over the past couple of weeks because it hasn't just been Epic Games. There's been Spotify and Facebook that have made the same argument. I wonder if your CEO, Tim Cook, you're seeing your stock at a record high on track for a $2 trillion valuation. Do you think, hmm, maybe I should revisit our policies around the App Store? Because the last thing they need right now is a high-profile corporate dispute with a company that has such a large and very young user base. Yeah, and I don't know if you know, John, the proportion offhand or if the company discloses it or people estimate it, but when we talk about Apple's price surge lately, how its multiple expansion is being driven by it, its services business, and the App Store revenues are a big part of that business. So if they change it or are forced to change it for Epic, they probably have to change it for everybody. It's a considerable uh, issue with the developers who are so important to Apple services business. But look, Kelly, n nobody will accuse Apple of bringing a knife to a gunfight when it comes to these sorts of platform wars. What they're doing with Epic is saying, oh, you want to make this about Fortnite? We're going to make it about your entire business, including Unreal Engine. If their developer account gets revoked, it affects a much larger portion of the business than just Fortnite. And for Epic, Fortnite, being on the App Store isn't a huge deal. I mean, they've got PC, they've got console. A lot of their users would be able to get around the mobile issue. Hmm. But if their developer account gets revoked, I mean, that's why they really want this court order. Yeah, well, the, again, the, I, I just think that if they're willing to go fight in this case, maybe they think they have somewhat less to lose, although they would still obviously lose a lot here. But 
I mean, they are playing right into Congress's hands. They are, but in the, the short and even medium term. We saw what happened with Qualcomm. Apple had you know, their suppliers stop paying Qualcomm licensing fees, and that hit Qualcomm hard. Now, eventually they settled. Qualcomm's way up now, but it went through the valley of the shadow of death to get here. <laughs> Epic might have that coming. Makes me think of Coolio. Anyway, uh, one to watch. We appreciate it. Next up, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is moving online after reporting 135 new COVID-19 cases and four clusters after just a week of in-person classes. Eric, what's interesting about this is not only all the colleges and other types of schools trying to figure out what they're going to do with COVID if they face similar outbreaks. But plenty of questions have been asked about why I think football and other sports are reportedly still continuing. Yeah, that's right. So the UNC, they're part of the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference. They're going ahead with fall football. So if you can't get through a few days of just normal students without getting COVID cases into triple digits spreading out in a few days. What are you going to do as soon as you have all these sports athletes and they're getting on the field playing against kids from other schools? So it's kind of a mess, but you knew this was going to happen. I don't think anyone thought we're going to send all these students back to college and we're going to get through without cases. You right. expected this to happen. Now it's just a matter of how they're going to deal with it. Is there some policy that the football team has about, okay, well, this has happened on campus, but it hasn't happened to us yet and if it does, then that's it. I mean, what are football teams, conferences in general doing? Because some have already canceled the season. Others are waiting. See, Kelly, that's such a naive question. It's <laughs> chaos out there. <laughs> Nobody has a clue. Every school's got their own rules. Every conference has their own rules. Division one versus two versus three. Everything is totally different. They are all making it up as they go along. There is no cohesive plan. That's why parents and athletes are furious, because there is no actual person in charge of this whole system. Everyone is doing whatever they feel like. Seema, what, what would you watch in terms of fallout here? Well, I think bringing it back to business, obviously this education crisis hits so many U.S. households, but I would bring to attention ACC, that's American Campus Communities. It's the largest student housing real estate investment trust. The stock actually moving on today's news around mm -hmm. UNC, and it's down double digits with the market at a record high, Kelly. Sort of a reminder that there are so many subsectors and under-the-radar stocks here that are down double digits this year. And again, with what Eric was just pointing out, the chaos that we're seeing in this sector, this is one stock that is certainly losing. That's that's a great point. We're showing it right now. It's down almost 4% for American campus today. Interesting. All right. Finally, and kind of speaking of sports, a coalition of black athletes and artists is coming together to fight black voter suppression. And one of their goals is to convert as many arenas and sports facilities as possible into voting precincts. And some names in this group include Allison Felix, Kevin Hart, LeBron James, Patrick Mahomes, Maria Taylor, dozens more. Just the latest example of athletes speaking out against injustice. And John, it would seem that you know, as we're talking about all these problems with mail-in voting and what's going to happen, I mean, if we could use stadiums, would that solve a, a big problem here? Yeah, it very well could. And in general, I think everybody should be happy about more people being able to register to vote, more people being able to exercise their right to vote uh, legally uh, without fraud. But all of these things get politicized. Some people are going to say, oh, well, here you go politicizing sports. Well, wait, wait a minute. Uh, you know, Olympics, Muhammad Ali, sports has been political for a long time. Politics, to some degree, is part of the point of sports. Yeah, no, I, I, I wonder, Eric, if it's affecting ratings this year, or is it hard to tell because it's such a unique 
season. It's hard to tell because depending on what numbers you're comparing to, for example, look at the NBA. They didn't have games in July and August last year. So, so what are you comparing to? They didn't have games at 10.30 a.m. Pacific time. So depending on what games you include for this year versus last year, you could say it's up, you could say it's down, you could say it's flat. But if you look, stadiums as a voting area, we already have uh, precincts in churches and libraries and schools and all these other places that people congregate. So if you could do that, you know, maybe stadiums isn't that crazy if you're already doing it in these other places. No, anyway. and it's a lot bigger than some of those other Social places. Social distancing. Exactly. And that's what we need right now. All right, we'll leave it there because we have some post office news. Thank you all today. Appreciate it. John Ford, Seema Modi and Eric Chemi. Uh, we do have some breaking news from the U.S. Postal Service. Kayla Tausche joins us. What's going on, Kayla? Hey, Kelly, the Postmaster General just released a statement trying to uh, improve morale of the view of the Postal Service in light of recent accusations that it is trying to kneecap the delivery of mail ahead of the election. In this statement, the Postmaster General said that he is expanding the task force uh, on election initiatives, that he will be pausing significant reforms of the post office's operations, which he believes are still needed. But he's going to be pausing those until after the election. He said the U.S. Postal Service is able to handle whatever volume of mail comes its way, that he is confident that all mail can be delivered in a timely manner and that there will be no changes to retail hours or the locations of post office boxes. Uh, in light of this recent criticism, Kelly, it comes as the Postmaster General is set to testify later this week on Capitol Hill, where he is expected to face very withering criticism and very tough questions. No, oh, for to sure. You. I doubt the statement will change that. But still, Kayla, thank you. The latest from the post office itself. Still ahead, old tech is bidding for new tech. Oracle is entering the fight to be the company that takes over TikTok's U.S. operations. Whether it has a shot is next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. Welcome back. A source telling CNBC that Oracle has entered the race to buy TikTok's U.S. operations. It joins Microsoft in that pursuit after President Trump gave the Chinese-owned company 90 days to divest its American operations on security concerns. And Oracle itself has strong ties to the White House. Co-founder Larry Ellison has been a major campaign fundraiser for the president, while CEO Saffir Katz served on his transition team back in 2016. And Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia allegedly intervened in a pay discrimination case on Oracle's behalf. For more on this company's tangled bid for TikTok, let's bring in CNBC.com technology reporter Alex Sherman and Ed Lee, who's the New York Times reporter and CNBC contributor. And Alex, great reporting on kind of figuring out this Oracle news here as well. What makes you think, if anything does make you think, that they might actually emerge victorious here? I think the interesting part of this is it really clarifies what it takes potentially to buy TikTok. This is obviously not a normal deal with the government forcing, in essence, a sale for ByteDance here for the U.S. operations plus a few other countries of TikTok. So I'd look at it, I'd say there's three different qualifications maybe you need. One, you need to be able to secure data in the United States. Oracle can do that with a cloud business of its own. Two, you need to be able to pay for TikTok in cash because a stock deal where ByteDance would own a minority stake in a U.S. tech company probably wouldn't fly here. Oracle, a very big company, well over a $100 billion market cap company, they could afford to do that. And third, you need a relationship with the U.S. government. And as you alluded to, Larry Ellison at TikTok has one. He threw a 
fundraising event for President Trump earlier this year. Uh, he has close ties to the U.S. government. So could it happen? Sure. Are there a lot of synergies? Probably not. Right, exactly. And Ed, that's where I'll pick up with you. What would happen if Oracle became the new parent of TikTok? I mean, would we expect it to just be kind of a, a quiet, benign you know, presence or would they would they have some larger plans for it? I mean, it's definitely a head scratcher, right? I think Alex makes the, the correct point here that the political ramifications around making this deal happen or forcing the deal and then making it happen seem to sort of enervate every aspect of it, right? Including the logic, meaning, well, Trump wants it sold and these guys are friends of Trump. So maybe there, there's some connection there. Putting all that aside for a second, if you want to play devil's advocate, you know, Oracle's in the cloud business, right? They're B2B. Uh, this is a consumer-facing business. TikTok, is, there's something that they haven't really done in the past. Arguably, they could make use of that social network, all the data that's gleaned from that. And as Alex points out, they would want to have the data as part of the deal. Use that data to help inform their cloud business, right? And so, it, you know, we can't place, it's really important to understand how data works for a lot of these tech companies, it's not just sort of uh, something that sits in a database somewhere. It actually changes how something works. Mm. So that's the devil's advocate there. At the same time, the sort of the business logic escapes me. I don't really <laughs> get it. Um, you know, I think a part of it is a little bit, it's a little bit back to the 90s when, you know, Microsoft was king and Oracle, Larry Ellison always sort of saw Microsoft as its chief competitor. And they're seeing Microsoft coming in for this deal potentially. It's like, oh, wait, hold on a second. I could be, I could be uh, the guy to own this. So again, the, the, the I don't see too much business rationale. Uh, there is some argument for the data, but look, TikTok is a money losing business. So even as a sort of a, a partner client to Oracle, it's something that they're gonna have to fund for at least a few years before they see any real benefits from it. And Alex, that goes back to what you say, they need to have some deep pockets. As you were describing that, I, I thought, you know, this needs to get moving along. I mean, this is a big complex thing to negotiate and there's not a lot of time. I mean, are there gonna be other possible bidders emerging here? At this point, it seems unlikely, just given the time constraint. And also, as I referred to, how many companies can really do this deal? Because you need to check all those three boxes. The only two companies that come to mind that also check those boxes, or at least the first two, meaning can do the deal in cash and can store the data, are Amazon and Google. But we know what Jeff Bezos' relationship is with the Trump administration. Right. It would seem almost impossible that Amazon would emerge as the buyer here. And in Google's case... Google owns YouTube, so the potential antitrust implications of owning both TikTok and YouTube may be a non-starter there. So I think part of the reason why Oracle is even involved here is that there are so few companies that could buy this asset. And to Ed's point, while TikTok loses money today, it is a huge growth asset. And it's an area that Oracle has struggled for years. Where is the growth? So you could be buying this at a forced sale price right. that that is sort of a deflated price because of the circumstances and end up with a jewel of an asset, even if it doesn't have any synergies to the rest of your business. It just could be a good purchase on the face of it. And I'm and, sure Oracle is interested for that reason. And I'll give you the last word here. And, and as we're talking about what that sale price might be, I see everything from 20 to $30 billion is being floated. I imagine someone, some objective party has to come up with a number, but this is one of the strangest deals we've ever talked about. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely strange. I think valuations are sort of, you kind of pick a number out of a hat. It's whatever's going to satisfy the stakeholders here, ByteDance, as well as, you know, the other business partners, Sequoia um, and General Atlantic. The thing that I want to point out, though, is in terms of what they're buying, what they're really paying for, it's not just the data. 
Oracle needs to figure out that in this deal, whoever it is, whether it's Oracle or Microsoft, will they get the algorithm that underlies the TikTok engine? Because, you know, unlike, say, television or movie studios, it's not just about stealing the user base, right, or buying the user base. You also have to buy the algorithm because that's what really drives TikTok's audience. It's sort of the next video that pops up. Right. Like, you know, YouTube could come in and steal all the top TikTok stars or Instagram could do that. It wouldn't matter because the algorithm would create the next hundred new stars. And mm -hmm. I think that's a key aspect to understanding what they should be buying if they want to buy it, if it actually goes through. So, you know, depending upon what comes with it, it could, you know, it might be worth zero if, if no matter what the price is. Fascinating. Guys, thank you both very much. Ed Lee and Alex Sherman on the latest with TikTok. For more on the battle, check out Alex's article. You can find it on CNBC.com. Still ahead, pandemic-sensitive economic reads like TSA checkpoint numbers are telling one economist that the V-shaped recovery is still on. He joins us with his contrarian call. Next. Welcome back. Many economists are warning this recovery is in jeopardy without another stimulus package on the way from Congress. But according to my next guest, it may not be fully necessary. And he says that not only will the economy be fine, but a V-shaped rebound is still possible, may even be happening before our eyes. Joining me now is Michael Darda. He's the chief economist and macro strategist at MKM Partners. Mike, it's good to have you. And I would say this is still out of consensus, but for sure, people are realizing that this rebound has been much stronger than we would have thought back during all the Great Depression headlines of a few months ago. No doubt about it. So we have three months under our belt now that have come in well above consensus. Uh, so May, June and July, whether we're talking about employment, production, sales, you saw the housing numbers today. So this has been much more of a V-shaped pattern that happened sooner than widely anticipated. Uh, and in the teaser, you mentioned some of these really high-frequency indicators that we can get daily and weekly uh, that so far are showing some signs of life even as we move into August. Right, the TSA numbers. I know you watch open table reservations and things like that. So we know that things flatlined during July. I think they're picking up a little bit again. Is that enough? You know, does it have to be stronger? Is it going yeah. to stay stronger? What role does Congress and, and fiscal stimulus need to play here? Because some of the estimates about the hit to the economy from the lack of extension look pretty scary. Yeah, no doubt about it. So there certainly is some policy risk here. I think, you know, it's probably premature to just go cold turkey on fiscal policy that would be disruptive and certainly not helpful. We still have a depressed economy here. We're recovering faster than expected, but there's still quite a ways to go if you look at the labor market. Uh, and the stimulus rescue efforts have been important. If you look at total personal income actually holding above the uh, the pre-pandemic highs. And so that's gone a long way to supporting spending. Uh, so, you know, what the market, I think, is telling us is either that the fiscal support will be extended or that the Fed is simply getting enough traction that the recovery continues, perhaps at a bit slower pace, but still continues onward from here, uh, even if it's not forthcoming. Let me ask you about the market. So in some ways, we're describing an economy that's catching up with the market's performance so far. How much of this rally can be sustained and with kind of what vigor and for how long a period of time once we move from the catch-up phase, the rebuilding phase, to more of the kind of expansion phase? 
Yeah, so you know, I think pretty much all of the gains can be sustained um, from here, but it's going to be slower going from here for sure. Uh, if you look at various valuation valuation metrics, whether it's price to liquidity ratios or we use an adjusted equity risk premium model, so there's less, far less upside now than when we were back in the dark days of of late March. Uh, that said, I don't think the market's unjustified in being where it is. Is. What we were hearing a few months ago was that the market had decoupled from the fundamentals. The market simply looks forward. It's not always right, uh, but investors are forward-looking. And as you know, we just discussed, we've had three months of data that have come in far better than expected. So maybe the market's not so dumb after all. And maybe that's a hopeful sign for the months ahead. Uh, Mike, thanks so much. It's good to have you. We appreciate it. Michael Darda with MKM Partners. That does it for us on The Exchange today. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.